It was during the frigid and dark days of January in 1692 when Betty Paris, the nine-year-old daughter of Salem Village Reverend Samuel Paris, and 11-year-old Abigail Williams, who was described as the Reverend's niece, began convulsing, screaming, contorting themselves into impossible positions, making unintelligible vocalizations, and attempting to squeeze themselves underneath the furniture. Reverend Paris was confused and frightened by the girls' behavior, but he did not immediately assume that they were the victims of witchcraft. In fact, he and his wife Elizabeth attempted to care for the girls at home for a few weeks in the cold and dark confines of the parsonage in a desperate attempt to restore their health. But when their condition did not improve, he sent for help from a group of local doctors. In late 17th century Massachusetts, illness was common, particularly among children. As many as 3 in 10 died before they reached the age of 5, and even as they got older, the dangers did not subside. Influenza, measles, smallpox, scarlet fever, typhoid fever, whooping cough, and numerous other potentially deadly diseases ran rampant across New England at the time. And even the best doctors had little understanding of how to prevent or treat such conditions. After weeks of observation, the doctors had ruled out epilepsy or any other diagnosis that they could imagine to be the cause of the girl's condition. It seemed that the evil hand was upon Betty and Abigail, the doctors told Reverend Paris. The girls had been afflicted by a witch, and there was nothing that they could do to help them. And so began what we now refer to as the Salem Witch Hunt. Betty Paris and Abigail Williams were the first of numerous people, mostly young girls but a few older people as well, who claimed to have been afflicted by witches in and around Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. Under pressure to identify who had caused their condition, Betty and Abigail, as well as two other girls who also now claim to be afflicted, 17-year-old Elizabeth Hubbard and 12-year-old Ann Putnam Jr., pointed the finger at three women. Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tichaba. These three women are then arrested and subject to examination by the Salem magistrates. Why were these particular women accused? What had they done to deserve such a fate? That's what this episode of the Salem Witch Trials podcast will explore. And to help us do that is Kathleen Brown, the David Boys Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Brown is a historian of gender and race in early America and the Atlantic world. She's also the author of several books, including most recently, Undoing Slavery, Bodies, Race, and Rights in the Age of Abolition. All 
three of these women are named by the afflicted girls, and it is appropriate to say afflicted girls for the first two girls because they're really young. And I do think that's the kind of still not fully understood part of the story of Salem Witchcraft is how the girls end up becoming the mouthpieces for what, by most historians' account, would seem to be a really large-scale kind of political and colonial crisis. Tichuba is in some ways the most obvious outsider of the three of them because she is not an Anglo-Puritan woman. She's the only enslaved person with a speaking role in Salem witchcraft. And this is one of the reasons why in accounts from the 19th century and into the 20th century, especially, people take the fact of her enslavement and turn her into an African-descended person. She had been part of Minister Samuel Paris's household in the British Caribbean. She was an indigenous person, but not indigenous to the Caribbean. She appears to have been indigenous to South America. She's part of his household when he's an, a merchant in Barbados. Um, her origins are in the traffic in indigenous people from South America to the British Caribbean. And that traffic in indigenous people is all through the British colonial world. He is not a great success as a merchant. So he relocates to New England. He brings Tichuba and possibly John Indian, who appears to have been her husband, early on in the episodes with the young girls basically having fits, having these sort of uh, episodes of affliction, right, where they're clearly behaving in ways that lead Paris to call a doctor and then to bring in ministers to try to figure out what's going on. One of Paris's parishioners, Mary Sibley, instructs either John Indian, Tichuba's husband, or Tichuba and John Indian together to bake a witch's cake uh, with urine provided by one of the other girls who's claimed to be afflicted. Tichuba's involvement in that, plus the fact that she was not an Anglo-Puritan woman, she comes up very early in the names that the afflicted girls offer as the people who are tormenting them. But they also pretty quickly name Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. <music> Some of the best scholarly accounts of these events drop the fact that Sarah Good is not only impoverished, homeless, she's also pregnant. So Sarah Good, she was on her second marriage. She had been kind of one of the usual suspects in witchcraft at an earlier point in her life because she engaged in behaviors that for not just Puritans, but for English people generally, had long been associated with the kind of context in which a person who had the powers of witchcraft would punish people who had done them wrong. So it was known by the witch hunters, the official kind of guidebook to how you knew a witch, it was known as Maleficium. And so what it meant was that Sarah Good had, at an earlier point in her life, ended up without enough of a sustenance to be able to have her own household with a kind of predictable income. And so she had been living off of the charity of neighbors for many years. And she wasn't an easy person to give charity to. She was kind of 
angry. Uh, You could understand why in her circumstances. She had been born prosperous, but the two marriages seemed to have really taken her fortunes down a notch. But in addition, her own right to some inheritance had been impeded by kind of an ongoing legal battle over the estate of her father. Two neighbors who had actually helped her by taking her into their household, Mary and Samuel Abbey, finally had to evict her, basically turn her out without another option really of where to go because she had just been such a source of turmoil in their household. She was well known for doing something that was definitely not part of the ideal for a virtuous woman. She had a very sharp tongue. So they evict her. And as she's leaving their house, she's muttering something. And a person in search of some kind of charity who is turned away and leaves the property muttering, that's the kind of classic maleficium. What it does is it leaves the ostensible giver of charity with a very uneasy feeling that they haven't really done what they're supposed to do um, in dispensing charity to those in need, but they feel like they've done what they're supposed to do because they tried until the recipient got on their last nerve and then they were like, get out of here. So they don't feel good. They feel very uneasy. They don't know what she's muttering. And the next thing they know, their livestock begin to die without any explanation. That's kind of a classic maleficium. She's a known figure and believed to be a source of trouble and conflict in the community. When she is questioned on March 1st, she strenuously denies and in fact just sort of pours scorn on the whole idea that the girls are suffering affliction because of some supernatural power she has. And she's really, really angry that she's being dropped in it. But then she decides to drop someone else in it. And that person whose name had already come up is Sarah Osborne. Sarah Osborne is 49, so it's likely she sort of fits one of the profiles, one of the many profiles of the kind of correlated factors of being accused. She's probably postmenopausal or in perimenopause. She's already kind of in the sights of some of the families closely related to the first afflicted girls and subsequent accusers, uh, one of whom is Anne Putnam because Sarah Osborne has been in a long-standing legal dispute with a prominent male member of the Putnam family, Thomas Putnam. And so certainly the afflicted girls kind of would have known through overhearing adult conversation that she was somebody kind of on the outs um, with their tightly knitted together set of families. Her first husband died and she remarried a young indentured servant, Alex Osborne. So that already is a little kind of off in most people's view. She's ill at the time of her arrest beyond the age of motherhood. She's still a mother, but she's not going to be having any more babies. And that already pushes her outside. If you think about that set of ideals for Puritan womanhood, 
you are most likely to be kind of living up to those ideals at the moment you're performing your motherhood by bearing children and taking care of infants. And sh- and she's no longer going to be able to do that as a perimenopausal or postmenopausal woman. Both Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne strenuously deny the charges against them. But Tichaba, on the other hand, takes a different approach and seems to tell her examiners exactly what they want to hear. You know, at a certain point, what people say about present-day false confessions is that people just want it to stop. They want the interrogation to stop. They're very smart about figuring out, and you didn't have to necessarily be a genius to figure out what these people examining her were looking for. And she then also said at various points that her former mistress had known something of witchcraft. Well, maybe she did, maybe she didn't, who knows? I think at a certain point, the only way to make it stop was to tell these crazy white people what she thought they wanted to hear. In addition to her role in making the witch cake, Tichiba, after an initial denial, told the magistrates that in fact the devil had come to her and bid her to worship him and to harm Betty and Abigail. She admitted to seeing the devil himself in the form of a variety of strange animals and fanciful beasts, and Tichiba also claimed to see Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne consorting with the devil as well. This confession from a slave who possessed no power in this society and was likely the result of her concern over being questioned by men of authority ignited a firestorm. While there's little doubt that Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tichaba each existed well outside what would be considered the traditional bounds of Puritan society, was there something more going on when it came to how Puritans viewed the threat that the devil posed on women? If the devil was looking for an easy mark, he would go to women first because they could easily have their hearts and minds turned away from the virtuous path by the false promises of the devil, that he could promise a woman riches and lovers and a better life on earth but the cost of the woman would be her life after death. There's so much more to unpack when it comes to women in the Salem Witch Trials, and we'll be doing lots more in future episodes of the Salem Witch Trials podcast. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to like and subscribe, and we'll see you next time. 